Get ready for unique, rare, and little-known treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to The Amazing World of Radio with Adam Graham. Welcome to The Amazing World of Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. We continue our rotation of holiday programs with a Memorial Day episode of Anthology. Anthology was a series in the mid-1950s, 1954 and 55, which focused on poetry and music, and with a strong emphasis on uh, American poetry and music. And that's definitely true on a day like Memorial Day. This is the type of program I don't think you would ever see aired. You might see a little something like this on uh, NPR. But this was actually aired over NBC, uh, and uh, features some really great talent as we're going to hear. So let's go ahead and take a listen to the Memorial Day edition of Anthology from May 30th of 1954. Ladies and gentlemen, during the next 30 minutes you will hear Bing Crosby, Frank Lovejoy, Agnes Moorhead, and Walter Houston as WNBC brings you transcribed a special Memorial Day edition of Anthology. Every Sunday at 3, WNBC, in conjunction with the Poetry Center of the YW and YMHA, 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue in Manhattan, brings you Anthology, a selection of readings of poets past and present, and the music to accompany their poetry. This afternoon, as a tribute to Memorial Day, we're to hear two of America's best-known and best-loved patriotic poems, and an equally well-known American story in verse form, read by Bing Crosby. On this Memorial Day of 1954, we have poetry spanning our nation's history from the earliest times to the present day from verses and dedication to our earliest settlers, to a story and verse which can very well serve as a symbol of that precious freedom for which so many American men and women have fought and died down through the long centuries. We begin with a poem of the birth of our country. Here is the distinguished American actress, Miss Agnes Moorhead, in a dramatic reading of The Landing of the Pilgrim Fathers.
The breaking waves dashed high on a stern and rock-bound coast. And the woods against a stormy sky, their giant branches tossed. And the heavy night hung dark, the hills and waters o'er. When a band of exiles moored their bark on a wild New England shore. Not as the conqueror comes, they the true-hearted came. Not with the roll of stirring drums and the trumpets that sing of fame. Not as the flying come, in silence and in fear. They shook the depths of the desert's gloom with their hymns of lofty cheer. Amidst the storm they sang, and the stars heard, and the sea, and the sounding aisles of the dim woods rang to the anthem of the free. The ocean eagle soared from his nest by the white waves foam, and the rocking pines of the forest roared. This was their welcome home. There were men with hoary hair amidst that pilgrim band. Why had they come to wither there, away from their childhood's land? There was woman's fearless eye lit by her deep love's truth. There was manhood's brow serenely high and the fiery heart of youth. What sought they thus afar? Bright jewels of the mind, the wealth of sea, the spoils of war. They sought a faith pure shrine. I call it holy ground, the soil where first they trod. They left unstained what there they found, freedom to worship. God. In the 1700s, we fought and won our liberty. And then, within another century, America was to go to war not once, but twice again. And to our great shame, won a war between the states in which citizen fought citizen. In the North, in the South, Divided loyalties, divided homes, names like Harper's Ferry, Shiloh, Bull Run, and in the White House, a tall, gaunt, unhappy man named Abraham Lincoln. The late Walter Houston brings us a poem of the Civil War, a poem of intense sadness written by Walt Whitman upon the assassination of President Lincoln. The special musical accompaniment was written by Victor Young. Walter Houston reads, O Captain... My Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near, the bells I hear, the people all exulting, while follow eyes the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But oh, heart, 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 oh, the bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies, 
fallen cold and dead. Oh, Captain, my Captain, rise up and hear the bells. Rise up, for you the flag is flung. For you the bugle trills. For you bouquets and ribbon wreaths. For you the shores are crowding. For you they call the swaying mass, their eager faces turning. Here, Captain, dear father, the arm beneath your head. Is it some dream that on the deck you've fallen cold and dead? My captain does not answer. His lips are pale and still. My father does not feel my arm. He has no pulse nor will. ship is anchored safe and sound, its voyage closed and done. From fearful trip, the victor ship comes in with object one. Exalt all shores and ring all bells. But I, with mournful tread, walk the deck my captain lies, fallen. portion of this special Memorial Day program, we're to listen to The Man Without a Country, a poetic narrative by Gene Holloway, based on Edward Everett Hale's immortal story, and narrated by Bing Crosby, with Frank Lovejoy as Philip Nolan. Many of us have heard this story before. It's been read to us by grammar school teachers, or declaimed, perhaps, by stammering fellow students, in classrooms distracted by spring whispering at an open window or by an autumn kaleidoscope of whirling leaves. We heard it as a text or a lesson. We learned it long before we could conceive of what it would be like to be banished forever from the land of our birth. Told in dramatic form, the story of Philip Nolan takes on a new stature, a greater depth, a stronger meaning. We feel that upon an American holiday such as this, it is highly appropriate to retell this fine American story, and especially in Gene Holloway's exciting radio verse. And now, 
The Man Without a Country. Order in the court. Order in the court. The attorney for the state will kindly continue. Mr. Nolan, is it not true that you are part of a conspiracy to destroy the government of the United States? No, that is not true. That is not true, I tell you. Do you dare to deny your pension with Aaron Burr? No, I don't deny that. But I do deny all your accusations of treason. Lieutenant Nolan, Aaron Burr has shown himself to be an enemy of the United States government. As an American officer, your country's enemies are your enemies. By your association with Aaron Burr, you betrayed the uniform you wear, the flag you follow, the country you profess to serve. That is true, is it not, Mr. Nolan? No, it is not true. It is not true. You still dare to defend your association with Aaron Burr? I don't think it needs defending. I only talk to the man. You don't think it needs defending. You need say no more, Lieutenant Nolan. I rest my case, Your Honor. Philip Nolan, rise and face the court. Philip Nolan, is there anything you wish to say to show that you have always been faithful to the United States? The United States? Damn the United States! I wish I may never hear of the United States again! Who was that man? Who would dare utter such treason? Let me tell you a story, America, about you and your growing. Not a story of a national hero, but of Philip Nolan who severed a bond before he knew its value. Listen to the story of the man without a country. Think back. Way back to the 1800s. Remember? You were still an adolescent then. You were proud of being a nation of 17 states. And you were beginning to speak grandly of adding Michigan, Indiana, and Mississippi. And becoming 20. Zealous old Tom Jefferson was in the White House. Down in the south was a man named Aaron Burr and a man named Philip Nolan. They say now, well, now that history has sifted the facts and weighed the evidence, they say Philip Nolan was as fine an officer as any in the Western Division. Oh, he was a little more hot-headed than some, a little swifter to anger than others, a little too quick sometimes about getting his two cents of opinion in, but he was not alone in this. There were many dashing young gallants like him, ready to die for a kiss as a flag. And Philip Nolan might have gone to his final sleep among the vine-covered homes of the dead in Orleans, as quietly as any of them, had a star not crossed his path one night. Mr. Nolan, I'm Aaron Burr. I'm told you're a young man of remarkable promise. I should like to talk to you about your future. Why, thank you, sir. I hardly know what to say. Thank you very much. A star comes that way sometimes. Sudden, blinding, dazzling. Aaron Burr came as a disguised conqueror. Rumor had it that there was an army behind him and an empire before. But that first day in Orleans, though Philip Nolan wasn't to know it for a long time yet, he became the man without a country. It was only a step from Aaron Burr's side to a trial for treason. The United States versus Philip Nolan. He was bewildered, deeply hurt, embittered. Above all else, he was young. An older man would have checked his anger. A traitor would have been wise enough to hide his feelings. But Philip Nolan was neither a wise man nor a traitor. A moment's silence. And then those words that were to echo forever through his life. 
I wish I may never hear of the United States again. I wish I may never hear of you. I wish I may never hear of you. The words filled the courtroom, shivered against the walls. No one spoke, no word fell to combat those other words. Half the officers in the room had served through the revolution. They had fought their way, starved and frozen through endless bitter months, so that one day a people could say, This is my country. Judge and the jury rose and left the court wordlessly. No one else stirred. Someone in the back of the room sighed and someone else coughed. That was all. Fifteen minutes went by like fifteen years before the judge returned. Prisoner, hear the sentence of the court. The court decides, subject to the approval of the president, that you shall have your wish. You will never hear the name of the United States again. It was the fall of 1807. It would be 1863 before he heard her name again. The leaves would grow red in Maryland soon. They'd be piled along the Potomac for burning. Their smoke would spiral into lace against the November skies. They'd be tapping the trees for maple sugar in the Vermont woods, and the New England housewives would gather in their spiced kitchens to prepare the Thanksgiving puddings. The Cape Cod fishermen would go out in the misty dawn for their nets, and the harvest would be a bright promise on the Indiana hillsides. The Blue Ridge and the Allegheny and the Rockies would pull the snow up over their shoulders and settle down for the winter. And the Mississippi would go slipping on through the heart of America. There would be hearth fires and Christmas trees and there'd be dances. There would be church service and wedding ceremonial and baptismal. But not for Philip Nolan. His was the sea and the bitterness of salt on his lips and no port at evenings. And in one sudden heart-stabbing moment, Philip Nolan knew what he had lost. Sir, you will receive from Lieutenant Neal the person of Philip Nolan, late a lieutenant in the United States Army. You will take the prisoner on board your ship and keep him there with such precautions as shall prevent his escape. You will provide him with such quarters, rations, and clothing as would be proper for an officer of his late rank. But under no circumstances is he to ever to hear of his country or see any information regarding it. So Philip Nolan walked the decks of the seven seas and he thought about America. But he never asked about her. He talked to his shipmates about the weather, about the sea, about all things but home. In foreign ports where he was rarely permitted to go ashore, he filled his days with reading. But in the books and in the papers given him, there was no mention of America. For him, she was only a dream that had ceased existing. He was a ghost among his companions, drifting from port to port, listening to a word that filled his heart that reached him in the wind, that sighed from the rigging. But the waves whispered through the midnight. One word. America. The grass is blue in Kentucky this spring. Wouldn't you like to ride through it with the earth hard and firm under your horse's feet? Think of it. Earth under you. The flower girls are in the streets of Orleans now. It's almost time for the Mardi Gras. Remember the girl you kissed at the Mardi Gras? The fields are white with cotton now. The slaves are singing. What would you give to hear their voices? 
The snow is thick and white in New England. They are riding through it to the Christmas parties. Can't you hear the sleigh bells? How long is it since you heard sleigh bells? Leave me alone. I can't stand thinking anymore. Oh, God, let me stop remembering. I wish I may never hear of the United States again. I wish I may never hear of the United States again. The court decides, subject to the approval of the president, that you shall have your way. No! No! The men were kind enough. On Sunday afternoons when they sat on deck, smoking and chatting, they invited Nolan to join them. He had a pleasant voice. Sometimes they asked him to read to them. One day the reading sessions came to an abrupt end. Here, Nolan, let's have something out of this. The Lay of the Last Minstrel. Walter Scott, eh? Yeah, it's a new book the captain sent down. He says there's some nice stuff in it. Well, let's have a look at it. Breathe there the man with soul so dead, who never to himself hath said, this is my own, my native land, uh, whose heart hath ne'er within him burned, as home his footsteps he hath turned from wandering on a foreign strand. If such there breathe, uh, someone else finish it. I'm something to attend to. Philip Nolan could never find peace. Ships docked, set sail, men went home on leave. He watched in wordless agony. He thought of candlelight on warm, gracious tables, of gardens where a man could crumble the rich soil in his fingers, of linens whipping on the clotheslines and the friendly smells of kitchens. He thought of moonlight on hair that was soft as silk to the touch, of eyes liquid in the starlight, of lips velvet smooth and ripe for kissing. He thought of arms opened wide to gather in the returning sailor and one special voice that would say, Welcome home. He thought of perfume and music and the rustle of silk. He was young, and there was a fierce hunger in him. Then one night in the Mediterranean, some ladies were invited aboard for a ship's ball. All that was young in Philip Nolan died that night. As he stood on deck, looking at the girl he had loved a lifetime ago. Anne. Anne Emery. Why, Philip Nolan. This is a surprise. You're looking splendid, Philip. The sea evidently agrees with you. I'd forgotten how lovely you are. You must have forgotten many things. It's almost impossible to believe finding your way out here. I'm on my way home. I've been visiting in France. I tried to see you before I left. And they wouldn't let me see anyone. I understand. I was very busy at the time, anyhow. I was married soon after you left. Married? Yes, of course. Hadn't you heard? I have a little boy now. A little boy? You must be very happy. I am, Philip. So strange that we should meet again way out here. I'm a little sorry we did meet. I'd forgotten you. It was better that way. I loved you very much. I loved you and I lost you. And everything else I loved in one mad moment. Oh, my dear. I think we should get back to the dancers. Yeah, of course. And would you tell me just one thing? What do you hear from home? Home, Mr. Nolan? 
I thought you were the man who never wanted to hear of home again. I beg your pardon. Good night, Anne. Philip Nolan knew in that moment how alone he was. One man with only the sea for the rest of his life and one nameless port at the end of it. The days became weeks, and the weeks years that marched across his forehead and left him old. His eyes were deep pools of loneliness, his heart completely empty. No one knew until the day he was dying how deep his hurt had gone. No one knew until that day when they entered his room for the first time and found it a shrine to America. Stars and stripes were draped around a picture of Washington, and he had painted a majestic eagle with its foot clasping the whole globe. At the foot of his bed was a great map of the United States, drawn from memory. Here, Captain. You see, I I have a country. Yes, I see, Nolan. How do you feel? Is there anything I can do for you? Captain, I'm dying. I'll never see my country again. But there's not a man on this ship or in all the United States that loves you as I do. Would you... Would you tell me about America? Tell you about America? How can I begin to tell you about America? He had left America in 1807. It was 1863. War had come and gone in 1812, and Francis Scott Key had sat on a British battleship and written the national anthem. Jackson had taken the Florida Territory. A new flag had been raised in Washington with 13 alternate stripes and 20 stars. Nine presidents had been in the White House. The Monroe Doctrine had been born, the cornerstone of American foreign policy. The continents of the Western Hemisphere are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for future colonization by any of the European powers. The United States had begun to gather themselves into a nation. It is not the states, but the people of the nation who have made the Union. It is, sir, the people's constitution, the people's government, made for the people, answerable to the people. Tell him about America. Tell him about Peter Cooper's steam locomotive, the Tom Thumb drawing its first train of cars over 23 miles of the B&O Railroad. Tell them about America. Andrew Jackson had moved the Indians west of the Mississippi. Arkansas, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa had joined the nation. The Battle of the Alamo had been fought in Texas and gold discovered in California. A new nation had spanned two oceans, and in the White House was the president whose words were the voice of the new nation. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Tell him about America, the power, the color, the strength, the beauty, the tears, the triumphs. Tell him so that he knows the glory he thrust aside. She's a great nation, Captain. A great nation. Yes, Nolan, a great nation. Nolan. Nolan. And so his last thought was of his country, 
Before they lowered him into the sea, they draped the flag of the United States over his coffin. How proud that would have made him. The captain intoned the last rites. The bugler played taps. And the ceremony was over. Men, we found this paper in Nolan's things. Bury me in the sea. It has been my home, and I love it. But will someone not set up a stone for my memory at Fort Adams or at Orleans so that my disgrace will not follow me through eternity? Say on it, in memory of Philip Nolan, lieutenant in the army of the United States. He loved his country as no other man has ever loved her. But no man deserved less at her hands. We will do as he wished. And so, although the sea claimed him, his soul would know the feeling of land again. The flowers would be near him in the trees and the earth of America. He would know the seasons and the pulsing life of the nation. There would be a flag over him and the knowledge of belonging. And thus, the man without a country came home to America. Man Without a Country, a poetic narrative by Gene Holloway, based on Edward Everett Hale's immortal story, and narrated by Bing Crosby with Frank Lovejoy as Philip Nolan. On Anthology, Memorial Day, 13, transcribed and dated Sunday, May 30th. Next week, our guest will be Marion Rooney of Cademan Records, who will tell us the story behind their famous recordings of contemporary American poets and readers such as Herd Hatfield, Joe Van Fleet, and Frank Silvera. With her, Miss Rooney will bring the newest Cademan recording of Judith Anderson, reading the poetry of Edna St. Vincent Millay. Anthology comes to you with the cooperation of the YW and YMHA Poetry Center. 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue, John Milcom Brennan, Director. The program is produced by Steve White, written and directed by Draper Lewis. And now this is Fleetwood wishing you good luck and good reading. Don't forget to join us next Sunday at 3 for another edition of Anthology on your community stations in New York. Welcome back. I really uh, appreciated Walter Houston's reading of uh, Walt Whitman's famous poem. I'd read O Captain, My Captain many times, but I don't think it was ever more alive than uh, in the way that Houston read it. Man Without a Country is a story that actually have been retold a lot. Uh, in fact, if you do a Radio Gold Index search, you'll find 10 different uh, retellings if you just search under the author name of Edward Everett Hale. I've heard a few of them, and to me, this one is probably the one that I think works best. Because it's very much a 
patriotic fable and the sort of lyrical telling and the short run to tell it, I think really works best for this particular piece. All right, well, that will actually be all for today. Join us back here on Wednesday as our summer series kicks off as we start the summer of Angela Lansbury. In the middle of that, we will bring you a July 4th uh, presentation as part of our holiday series. But join us back here on Wednesday for the start of the summer of Angela Lansbury. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.